Amen. Well, thank you, Amelia, Jamie, and Seth, Eric, for the beautiful song. See, though, the problem of the song that we just heard is that it just preached the whole sermon. Would you bow your head for a benediction? No, I still got a full sermon. When you hear such a great message, gospel message, ah, I'm so grateful for that. We have been walking through the book of First Samuel this summer, and last week we heard through First Samuel 15 that God has regretted appointing Saul on the leadership. So in today's chapter that we are about to look at, Samuel will go out on a journey to find a new king according to God's command, and it does not go as planned. So. How do you respond to Stonehill when God's plan looked very different than what you have planned? How do you respond to that? We like to plan. We like to schedule. That's who we are. But when God has different plan, how do we respond? Oftentimes, God has different plan than what we plan because how he values, what he values is quite different than what we value so much. When you find in that, when you find yourself in the contradiction, how do you realign yourselves with God? I hope and pray that today's text, 1 Samuel 16, will deal with some of your questions. That being said, let's go to the text. It's 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. It's your pew Bible, page 238. 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. Here, the prophet Samuel goes to find a new king among Jesse's son, as God has declared to the prophet. Uh, Let me read the entire story for us. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. 
And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is reading of God's word. So we'll talk about three things. First, how God's plan works in our lives. Then we'll talk about second, how God's value system confound our value system. And lastly, how to realign ourselves with God. So first, how God's plan works. Second, how God's value system confound our value system. And lastly, how to realign ourselves with God. So first, let's talk about how God's plan works in our lives. Here in verse 1, God commanded Samuel, Hey, enough grieving. Go, find a new king for me. So as Samuel goes in verse 2, Samuel said, Wait a second. If Saul finds out that I'm about to anoint a new king, he will kill me. Well, what are you going to do, God? Then you would expect God to answer something like, well, Samuel, that's a great question. That's a legitimate concern. If Saul sends you an army and all that, then I'll provide my own army, or you should flee the town. You'd expect God to answer that. But how does God answer in verse 3? Oh, I'll show you what you shall do. Just anoint the king whom I have declared to you. In other words, Samuel said, I might die. He might kill me. And God says, we'll see. So you got to give some credit to Samuel here because, by all means, even God has declared a new king. God has regretted appointing Saul. Saul, by all means, is still on the throne. And Samuel is about to anoint a new king. This is revolution, rebellion. So Samuel is afraid of his life. So he tells God, just show me something. But God said, you will see as you go. Simple trust and obey is what God asks. Oh, man, uncertainty. Ugh, we don't like that word, do we? It's like uncertainty is as bad word as moist. When we hear moist, it's like ugh, sticky. We don't like that. We don't like uncertainty. We desperately want to control future, predict future. We just want God to tell us what's going to happen tomorrow. Many of you have planned after this church to go out lunch, to go take a nap, to do family chores. You even have planned for tomorrow. But sometimes God does not tell us exactly how he's going to act tomorrow. So what do we do? We create a bunch of hypothetical scenarios in our mind and try to predict how God will act. We say, okay, okay, if A happens, oh, then I'll do B. Well, if B happens, oh, then God will provide C. Well, what if Alpha comes through? Oh, then I'll answer it with Beta. We, crib, we stay up late at night trying to figure out how God will act. But church, do you and I really know that God does not provide hypothetical grace to your hypothetical situation? God provides real grace in your real situation day by day, asking us to trust and obey. 
But we create a bunch of scenarios in our mind and try to put God in our box with our imagination, end up serving the God of our imagination, not the God of the Bible. Oftentimes, God will just tell us, go, then I'll show you what you shall do. Oh, man, how I do not like that. I want to know and control. This is not a brand new phenomenon. It began from the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve wanted to take control of their lives, so they took that fruit. We want to limit any type of uncertainty as possible. Sometimes when we are suffering, we just want to know why, then everything would be so much easier. I was about third grade, I believe. Uh, my dad had been pastoring already for a while. By God's grace, he's been still pastoring this small-town country church in Korea over 30 years. Praise God. Um, in third grade, this new family moved into our town, and our church really took them in, especially my dad as a pastor, my mom as pastor's wife. They really took in this family. We did everything for them. Our church had kind of parachurch ministry of daycare and kindergarten. We gave them jobs and all that. Three, four years later, after all that we've done, this is actually one of my biggest traumas in my life. I still think about it, dream about it time to time. That they've done something unthinkable. They basically took the church apart, took one-fourth of the church away, made a bunch of false accusations. That was so hurtful in my sixth, seventh grade mind. As I see my dear mom, whom I love the most, cry every day for one year straight. It was miserable. I cried out, God, why? Just tell me why. What am I supposed to do? I feel so helpless. Your mom just crying. And there's nothing you can do. One of the things I said in that time was, God, I still love you. I know you are still with me, but I'll never be a pastor. No way. Looks like God has a different plan, right? But it would have been so much easier. I felt like God would tell me, God, do you really know what's happening? Tell me why. Tell me what's going to happen in the future. Sure, church was restored, and we were able to actually build a new building, and our ministry flourished. But that does not excuse all kinds of things that happen. But Stoniel, sometimes God just tells us in the middle of uncertainty, in the middle of unknown, here in the middle of risking Samuel's life, God says, I'll show you what you shall do. Go. Will you trust him? Do you think God does not tell Samuel all the details because he does not know what's going to happen in the future? No, that's not the case. Look, verse 1. Do you know what God says in verse 1? For I have provided myself a king among his sons. The Hebrew word translated there as provide, that word actually means see. So what God is saying, I have seen myself a king among Jesse's son. What does that mean? God had already foreseen what was to take place. He knows. He has a plan. But simply tell Samuel, go and trust me. I shall show you what you shall do. Stoniel, do you trust him in the middle of uncertainty? Or are we prone to panic and wonder? May all of us trust him and obey. Here, by God's grace, Samuel goes. Verse 4 and 5, as Samuel goes into the town, the elders of the town come out and say, Do you come peaceably? So verse 5, Samuel answers, peaceably. What that means is this. At the time in the ancient time, when a prophet of God goes into a town, he would go in for one of the two reasons. One, 
is either to warn them about their sin, about God's coming judgment, or two, a prophet would go in a town to offer up sacrifice on their behalf. So first, you come in with fear, right? Second, you come with peace. Thankfully, in this case, it was the latter case. You come, you come to the peace. So Samuel answers, I come peacefully. God has commanded me to find a new king among you. So I'm here. Why don't you prepare yourself? Why don't you consecrate yourselves before the Lord? And let us go to find out who the new king is. So Samuel goes with these people. Now, as Samuel goes to find a new king, you will see that plan does not go as Samuel expected. Because how God values and how men values are very different. So let's talk about second. How God's value system confound our value system. Look, verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Somehow Samuel is convinced by seeing Eliab, this is the new king. Why is he convinced by that? Look, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. So Samuel looks at the tall, huge, good-looking guy, Eliab, and says, oh, that's the new king. That's the God's anointed. And God says, don't look at appearance or height or stature. You got to give some credit to Samuel in some point, but not this, I feel like. Haven't we seen this before? When you look at 1 Samuel 9, there's a description of King Saul. What does it describe? He was head and shoulder above anybody else. In a sense, height, tall, was qualification to be a king who fight the battle on their behalf. So as soon as Samuel sees his ex- external quality, external beauty, and says, that's my king. But the Lord had to intervene and say, what does God say? Seven, verse 7b. For the Lord sees not as man sees Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Here, God had to step in and confront Samuel. Now, I think it is very easy for us to think, oh, come on, that's the old days. We don't really judge people by their book cover anymore. Oh, really? Why do you think racism exists? Isn't that judging people by book cover? Have you heard about lookism? Lookism is prejudice or discrimination based on physical appearance and especially physical appearance believed to fall short of societal notions of beauty. It affects their romantic relationships, job opportunity, and tons of discriminatory treatment. Oh, we still very much judge people based on their appearance. Now you say, oh, come on, pastor. That, that's the culture. That's the world. We are Christians. We don't really do that anymore. Well, we do. Let me push you one step further to show you that. Uh, David Brooks has written a book called The Road to Character. In his book, he distinguished two virtues, resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And he writes this, The resume virtues are the ones we list on our resume, the skills that you bring to the job market and that contribute to external success. The eulogy virtues are deeper. They are virtues that talked about at your funeral. 
the ones that exist at the core of your being, whether you are kind, brave, honest, or faithful, what kind of relationship you formed. If we examine ourselves, I think we'll be the first one to say, oh, yes, eulogy virtues are what matters. Sure, by in depth, by, by breath, people might remember resume virtues, but by in depth, people who have known us see us through our eulogy virtues. Yet, let me ask you, when was the last time that you stayed up late at night worrying about, oh, man, am I, am I, am I really loving? Am I really kind? In comparison to, when was the last time you wait, stayed up at night? Oh, man, I don't have enough money. Oh, man, I don't know what I'm going to do with my, my job, success, promotion. I got to find a new housing. All the things that we are wrapped up are so much often resume virtues. And this society, modern Western culture, rewards those who are wrapped up with that. It's designed for it. What do I mean by that? Princeton is, in a sense, capital of that. Pre-K to K-12, we work our, so much to get to the best college possible, working on our resume, polishing. We get to the best college you imagine. Now you spend all four years trying to figure out best job possible, resume virtues. So you finally get the, your dream job, and you said, oh, yeah, now I'm done worrying about my resume virtues. Really? Then you look for a spouse who are just as qualified externally as you are, about how beautiful they are, how much money they have, how much financial security they got for the future, stability. We judge people by so much of resume virtues. It's not done. You get married. You have kids. Now you put your kids pre-K to K-12. You must get A. I'm Asian. If you don't get A, you're out of house. It's like endless. The cycle perpetuates all the time. I'm kind of harsh on you today, aren't I? Well, normally I'm not like this. But do you know in the scripture, there's a term for eulogy virtues? In the scripture, it's called the fruit of the spirit. When was the last time that you were like, God, when, you, when was the last time you examined your heart before the Lord? God, am I truly loving? Am I truly kind? Am I truly gentle? When people see me, is there truly self-control in me? Versus, man, I don't have enough money. Man, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I, I'm kind of speaking harshly, but I'm no different than you. Well, my mom and dad are non-typical Asian parents. I call them. I get so wrapped up about my resume virtues. Mom, dad, you don't believe it. I don't know that I'm going to make it. Man, I don't know what to do about future. And dad goes, Jin, are you truly content today? No, no, no. Dad, you don't understand what I'm talking about. This really matters. This is going crazy. How's your heart? Oh. They've always asked the mom and dad or like, Jin, how's your heart? Are you truly content today? Stonio, do you know what's the fruit of being so focused on your resume virtues? It's called anxiety. You're day and night worrying about your future, planning every single jot and detail. You're worried about your future income, job, children, family, your future children's grade. Endless anxiety, self-absorption, obsession. But have you met those who day and night examined their heart before the Lord. Here, God says it. God does not judge on their external appearance. God sees man's heart. Have you examined your heart before the Lord day and night? 
God, what kind of person am I becoming? Have you met those who's truly, profoundly, deeply joyful that there is some sort of gospel buoyancy, the lightness of them? And even if external circumstances may fail, there's calm peace in those people. I am not talking about those by temperament more joyful and more peace. Ha ha ho ho hee hee. They got plenty of worries on their own. But I'm talking about those who truly sought their hearts day and night before the Lord. God, what kind of person am I becoming? Am I becoming a monster, Frankenstein? Worrying about my future? Worrying about money, retirement fund? Or am I become more loving today? Stonehill, if God sees you and I today, I would love for God to say, Zin, I see your heart and I love you. I anoint you. How's your heart today? Let me be my mom and dad to you. Are you truly content today, Stonehill? Or are you so obsessed over a bunch of resume virtues that you're so worried, filled with anxiousness? Are you truly, how's your heart before the Lord? Have you taken time to examine before the Lord? If you do that, then you will find an answer that your hearts are deceitful and wicked. There's nothing good in it. That God would not say, Jin, you're beautiful because I see your heart. If God just sees me, my heart, on my own merit, he will say, that's ugly. That's wicked. Jin, you need an antidote to sicken, to, de- to heal that disease of your heart. Then lastly, how do we realign ourselves with God? By now, you know that we are often so wrapped up by external beauty, external virtues. And how do we realign with God that we work on our heart before the Lord. Look how the plot continues. If you look at verse 8 and 9, 10, so Samuel continually searched for a new son. Second son comes, third son comes, fourth son God says, nope, 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 next. Look here. It's not even Jesse, the father. It's the Samuel in verse 10 asks, is this it? Is there any other people there? And then Jesse responds by verse 11. What does he say? There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. The word translated there as youngest is the Hebrew word hakstan. It's a great translation, but actually it means much more than just youngest. The hakstan, that word also embodies inconsequential, smallest, at least. So basically what his own father, Jesse, is saying, oh, oh, yeah, 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 we have the youngest, smallest, uh, there's nothing to write home about that little Dave. Yeah, my Dave is just out there watching sheep. Uh, don't worry about him. Here is even forgotten son by his own father comes to the scene. Do you know what he's trying to, author is trying to convey here? Well, another commentator says it this way. By his sheer youth, David has been excluded from consideration as a kind of male Cinderella left to his domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. While first son, second son, third son comes in, am I the next king? They all attend succession party. Oh, poor Dave. He's just out there doing domestic chores, tending the sheep, being even forgotten by his own father. But what happens? Verse 12, God says, that's the guy. Anoint him. Verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. 
the forgotten son becomes the chosen one. Stonehill, in the Old Testament and ancient times, there's this tradition called primogeniture. What that means is the elder gets a double portion of all the blessings. The elder gets all the inheritance, much more than any others, all the right and privilege belong to them. So give a little credit to Jesse that, of course, he would bring his elder first. But if you look at the redemptive history of God, God continually reverses these values of this world. It was supposed to be Cain, but instead of Cain, it's the Abel, the younger. Instead of the elder Esau, it's Jacob God chooses to use. Instead of all the older brothers, God reverses this value of the world by choosing Joseph to rescue Israelite. And here, instead of Eliab, tall, good-looking, handsome, charismatic, God chooses the little David, inconsequential, the forgotten son. What that means is this, Stonio. When no one sees you, God sees you. When the world said there's no value in you, God sees that I see you beautiful. There is value in you. When nobody seems to care, God does care. That's what I'm drawn to Christianity the most. It flips down the world's value system. God's value system will continually confound our value system. And do you know where and when it climaxed? There, David was only a forgotten son. A thousand years later, there will be forsaken son by his father. Jesus, according to this world value, he should have come with power, glory, and might. Do you know what he came? Weakness, shame. Jesus should be most majestic, most beautiful. Do you know what Isaiah 53 tells us? There was no majesty that we should behold him. There was no beauty in him that we should desire him. There was no beauty, no majesty. He stripped all of that. See, according to the principles and the value of this world, I mean, Jesus did everything right. So all the blessings and the heaven should have opened up before him. But at the cross, instead of heaven and blessing, the curse and the hell opened up. See, this story about the forsaken son by his father, point, uh, forgotten son by his father, points us to the forsaken son. When God says in verse 1, I have seen myself a king, Yes, he has seen David, but he had already foreseen thousands of years later, there will be another king, the ultimate David, who will not only be forgotten, but forsaken for you and I. See, so we ask question, how do you realign ourselves with God? Stonehill, this sermon is for you, who are so worried because of uncertainty of future. I don't know what's going to happen. How can I trust you? This sermon is for you who are so caught up in your resume of virtues, external beauties, ugly hearts. How do you make ourselves beautiful? Look to Jesus. That forsaken son, this forgotten son points us to the forsaken son. I could give you a thousand applications. But scripture points us to Jesus. When God sees my heart on my own, he'll say, that's ugly, Jim. All you got is self-centeredness, self-absorption, your own sand castle that you're building. But when I trust Jesus, he says, son, Jen, I see my only begotten son, Jesus, in you. Therefore, you are beautiful. 
Estonia, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, God has declared you beautiful today. See, God did not love you because you are beautiful. No, God loved you. God pursued you to death to make you beautiful. When you're so wrapped up with the uncertainty of life, when you're so focused on the values of this world, the sand castle you are building, would you look to the forsaken sun for you and I who make us beautiful day and night? Let us go before the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, I confess myself that I'm so focused on external beauty, external values of this world. We all worry about our future planning, career, job, finance, success, promotion, children's success, retirement fund, where to. But God, would you allow us to examine our hearts before you? Would you truly allow us to see whether we are bearing any fruit because we've sought and examined our hearts before you? God, we fully confess that there's no beauty in us on our own. Lord, you do not look on outward experience, but look the heart. Oh, Lord, please see Jesus in us. And continually day and night make us more beautiful because of what Jesus Christ has done. So God, I thank you that today this forgotten some points to this forsaken son for you and I. May all of us abide in him today and find peace and rest. In your precious name we pray. Amen.